Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Christine Purden. She's a professor at the University of Waterloo. And we're going to talk about anxiety and other cognitive manifestations. So, Christine, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, tell me about your background and you know what got you interested in this subject. So I'm, I've been at the University of Waterloo since 1997, and I've been studying anxiety since I was a graduate student. And I think what I find so interesting about anxiety is that it's it's a response that we need to have. We absolutely have to have an anxiety response or we couldn't survive threats and danger. But what I find so interesting is that in some people, this normal, very normal adaptive response can become so problematic for them and so pervasive that it severely limits their capacity to function. And anxiety disorders are uh, actually significant causes of disability on par with um, physical diseases like diabetes. And the impact on the economy is is upwards towards where um, tobacco use is. So it seemed to me it's a sort of a widespread mental health issue. And and again, I was intrigued by how can a response that's normal become something that becomes so, something that was so functional becomes something that's so dysfunctional for people. Well, what is it like when you, you know, you work with someone that has uh, the various types of anxiety disorders? Like what, you know, what are the names of maybe the top few, you know, how do they manifest? We'll get into it. Yeah, so so the the term on anxiety disorders includes well actually they call it um anxiety and related disorders. So it would include things like social anxiety, so where people uh, have a lot of self-consciousness in social situations to the point where it actually makes it really challenging for them to to get into social situations and they may function okay, but they find it highly aversive. 
uh, and the self-consciousness is, is quite devastating. There's also panic disorder, which is uh, characterized by panic attacks, which are sudden and quite terrifying episodes where people are sort of, you know, going about their life and then suddenly, boom, they're feeling overwhelmed with, with panic and anxiety. And, uh, and then they start modifying their life in order to avoid another one being triggered. Another anxiety disorder is what we call generalized anxiety disorder. And this is one that's characterized by really excessive worry. So we all worry from time to time, but somebody with generalized anxiety disorder might find themselves spending a lot of their day worrying, thinking, okay, well, what if this, what if I can't park here when I need to drop this off and then I'm late and then I can't drop it off and then the office is closed. And if I can't drop it off, then they may not accept it tomorrow. And and so it just goes on and on. And at the end of it, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, my, there's a catastrophic sort of outcome because they're anticipating into the future, the worst outcome of the worst outcome of the worst outcome. So then there's also related disorders such as obsessive compulsive disorder, which is characterized by the occurrence of obsessional thoughts, which are unwanted intrusive thoughts that return, even though you don't want to have them and create a lot of distress and typically are handled by uh, some kind of strategy to to reduce that distress. So by washing and checking are some of the more common ones, but it can also be an internal strategy, such as reciting lucky numbers or saying a prayer or trying to think a good thought in, re- in response to a bad thought or seek reassurance uh, from somebody else or from yourself. There's also health anxiety where people can be really concerned that there's something quite wrong with them that people haven't been able to find or figure out or diagnose properly yet. And so there's a lot of preoccupation with uh, am I sick and doing tests and Googling, doing a lot of internet searches, getting different opinions from medical professionals, et cetera. And there's also body dysmorphic disorder, which is where somebody's excessively self-conscious about one or two perceived flaws in their appearance. So they may be very concerned that say their nose is too big. And so they focus excessively on checking and trying to find ways to disguise it, uh, et cetera. So, so those are some of the main manifestations of anxiety. Yeah. It's a lot of different ones and they very different manifestations. And yeah, it, I don't know if I've seen them all, but I've certainly heard of, of all of them. Are there a lot more? Those are just the major ones or is that it? Yes, those are um, the most, what we might call some of the more common ones, but we can also, like there's with panic disorder, often people with panic disorder also will have what we call agoraphobia, which is that because of the panic symptoms, the person really restricts their range of movements and they become very, very concerned. Like they, for example, some people with panic disorder may not want to go into a wide open space because that brings on the sensations that are similar to a panic attack. Or they may not want to go out alone because if they have a panic attack, somebody won't be there to, to help them out. Or they may avoid driving because they're afraid they'll have a panic attack and, and crash the car or something like that. There are also specific phobias. So phobias of, of very specific uh, stimuli like spiders or snakes, for example. And yeah, is, each, is each phobia considered a different disorder or different manifestation yes. of anxiety or not necessarily? Yeah. So in the, in the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental, mental disorders, each one of the, the things that I mentioned would be considered a separate disorder. They're often fairly comorbid, like what we call comorbid, which is that if you have one anxiety disorder, you're, you are more likely to have another anxiety disorder. And you also, it's quite anxiety and depression are often very comorbid. 
are people, um, do they tend to be born with these or do they manifest and manifest at different ages and circumstances? It's, it's, that is such a good question. So one thing we know is, is that the temperament of a baby from around the age of two weeks can help us. There's an anxious temperament uh, that they, they talk about. And so a baby with an anxious temperament is more likely to go on to develop an anxiety issue. Um, we know that there is some genetic factor we also know that if somebody has an anxiety disorder chance, there's a greater chance that somebody in their immediate family also has one. And so one thing, one pattern we see is, is that if, if one or both parents are very anxious, the child is, even if there's no necessarily genetic influence, the child learns an anxious way of responding and learns that, you know, things that novel, that bad things are, you know, just around the corner and going to happen, or the child learns an avoidant response uh, to threats. So withdraws from, from novelty or, or things they, that are uncertain to them rather than approach and learn something new about them. So there's certainly like a nurture component to it. And in fact, a lot of the people that I work with, with anxiety, that one of the reasons that they've come to see me is because they don't want their children to learn the anxious ways that they've learned and they want to be able to to respond to anxious triggers differently for the sake of their children i'm sure everyone's asking you this question the past year and a half this virus crap how has that affected everyone and what has it done to the anxiety profiles that you see before we continue i've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now which has led to 2700 plus interviews of clinicians researchers scientists ceos and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's such a good question. And there, I think there was a lot of concern initially that because of the, the uncertainty and the sense of danger, particularly at the very beginning of it all, when we knew, seemed to know so little about the virus and how it was transmitted. And we thought that it could be transmitted through surface contact, which meant that it seemed very easy to get. And we didn't, you know, it was very, and, and very easy to get and difficult to protect yourself from. And so there was a lot of concern that people, for example, with obsessive compulsive disorder who uh, do a lot of hand washing might accelerate their symptoms or that it would create like greater, greater anxiety for people with um, generalized anxiety disorders. So far, there hasn't been good epidemiological data to suggest that there's been a change in prevalence rates of anxiety. What instead I think is happening is that people without anxiety disorders are more anxious, but that's a normal response to a very stressful kind of circumstance. And in some ways, people with anxiety disorders may actually be better because, for example, somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder, well, now everybody's following the rules. Everybody's washing their hands and covering their mouth and staying home and avoiding contact. Uh, their family members may now all be home because they're confined. And so they have control. They can count heads. They, they can manage the environment much better. People with social anxiety may find that 
you know, if they're, they don't have to be in public anymore. And on Zoom calls, they can turn their camera off or they can, uh, they, they can manage their social presentation much, much differently. And people with GAD might think, okay, well, the other shoes dropped. Now I know what to worry about. Now I know what to do. And in fact, people with generalized anxiety are often really, really good in a crisis because they feel very secure now because like, they've been waiting and waiting for a shoe to drop. Like they are, they've been assuming something bad was going to happen. Well, now it's happened and they know what to do. So I think that there's sort of, there's no one size fits all sort of model for this. And there, there's no doubt that, uh, but one thing I would say, I didn't talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but of course that's another related anxiety and related disorder, which is where there's a traumatic response to a life-threatening or very seriously uh, extreme situation. And I think that uh, there's been people, frontline workers and also uh, people who've lost loved ones to COVID have have experienced a lot of trauma. So because they the healthcare workers are there and they're they're dealing with uh, something they've never had to deal with before in their lives. So, you know, nurses who who have been on a, you know, a, a neonatal unit are suddenly being seconded over to the ICU and have to intubate very, very sick people who are very young and have families. And they have to like suddenly like master skills that are very sophisticated. And and of course, many uh, I, people who, who have frontline workers have had to sit and be the only one to accompany somebody while they die and, you know, be the one that that holds up the iPad to the family members. And so this, these tragic, really difficult to accept situations uh, can be very, very profoundly affecting for people or loved ones who you can't get in to see their relative and, and only say goodbye through an iPad. Um, so that can be traumatic. And being intubated can also lead to trauma. It has, like, if you come out the other side of being intubated, the, the actual uh, memory of being intubated and everything that's happened to you can be traumatic. So I think that at the, once life is starts to really go back to normal, we might find actually a little bit more trauma, people more like a, a greater percentage of people with, with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mainly because there's been a lot more of the population exposed to trauma than in the past. And we also may find that people with, you know, say social anxiety who've been kind of able to hide now have to come out uh, again. And it, uh, that may be harder because they're not used to it. So I think initially we're going to see some people with anxiety problems may start to have more symptoms. I'm not sure that the actual prevalence rates, though, are going to change apart from PTSD. Has it been studied on, well, I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to, it would be unethical to traumatize people, but is there any observation or knowledge of how long it takes to traumatize someone? And I know it depends on the intensity, it depends on the person, et cetera, et cetera, but are there any guardrails here? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so one thing I should say is is that that post traumatic stress disorder is not the norm. So it's very normal immediately in the, in the six six weeks to three months following a, a trauma for people to have a lot of symptoms. But for many people, those symptoms resolve on their own, and some people don't even have a lot of trauma symptoms. And uh, so it's a it's still not going to be the norm that anybody exposed to trauma is going to get PTSD. So it's more that. A lot more people have been exposed to traumas. Therefore, there, there's going to be a larger general proportion of people who, who are going to uh, have PTSD in the population, but it'll still be the same rate. So I think um, we're, we're very resilient as humans. And I think we forget that, that we have great capacity to, to grow and adjust and adapt 
and sometimes find meaning in trauma. So, but yes, yeah, so I think that th- there's been some research on like who, who goes on to develop trauma and who doesn't. And your question's very good. We can't traumatize people, but we can do things like look at people who've had a similar kind of car accident and sort of follow people and find out who, you know, it, which, what, what, what might be different about people who go on to, to develop trauma or soldiers in war or people who have survived other, the same kind of traumatic experiences. And it probably has a lot to do with how you experience that trauma, whether you felt out of control, whether you felt there was a, what we call a moral injury, like a sense that this was, this was a very unjust event that never should have happened. And I, the people, people around me, let me down. So if people are feeling like their hospital leadership, for example, created circumstances that actually made the trauma worse or made the conditions for people with COVID worse, there may be this moral element that makes it harder to accept and to move on from. So, but, but again, it's, it's not, it's not the norm. It's, it's the more like it's fewer people go on to develop trauma. It doesn't mean that they're weak. It just means that the trauma has affected them differently. You mentioned moral injury. I recently, uh, you know, heard about it, and it makes sense because if you're a when you're a police officer and you see terrible things many times, then you become hardened. Or if you're in war, or if you're, and I guess if you, you know, if someone's a prostitute, they're injured in a different way too. Or if they're a police officer, like I said, or a judge. It seems like moral injury can affect a lot of different professions. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, I think that's a, an element that's common across different different types of situations that can be traumatic. So in terms of the anxieties, though, can all of them, have you observed all of them produced by circumstance or do some of them just seem to come from nowhere? You know, again, they, they seem to be hereditary. Yeah. So we do know that children who are anxious are more likely to grow up to be adults who are anxious. So we know that for sure. And this is why trying to get mental health services to kids is actually really important. And, and so in terms of, so for some people, yes, there'll be some kind of trigger event, like with a specific phobia, for example, somebody might've had a dog bite, or they might've seen their parent get bit by a dog. And now they're scared of dogs with, with generalized anxiety, social anxiety, you know, it's hard. Like, it just seems that we, we don't have a good understanding of why some people have it and some people don't. We do know that people with social anxiety will often report um, bullying experiences, humiliating experiences, but it's also hard to know if that's because if that triggered the social anxiety or whether they already had social anxiety and, and therefore maybe looked, uh, were a little bit less, or a little bit more reserved in social settings and then were, were targeted by bullies and picked on for being different in some way. So yeah, I would, I would love to know why they develop and persist, but I mean, I have, we have some good understanding of why they persist. I think in terms of development, it's just really hard to know right now. So are you doing all clinical work or research as well or a combo? I do a combination of a small private practice, but I, which is really helpful to me to actually hear people's stories and find out what, what do the people having these issues, what, what are they confused about? What would they like fix? What do they want to understand about themselves? And that gives me uh, very good ideas for uh, what I should be researching. What are the, what are the key questions that I, I should be researching? So my research has looked at why, well, one, one set of research has looked at what happens when we become anxious internally. So uh, looking at how anxiety shapes our information processing. So when we're anxious, we become very threat focused. That is that we attend to information that is or could be threatening at the expense of other information 
And that's very helpful to us if a lion's about to pounce, then we should really be very focused on that threat and how to uh, fight or flee it. But if we uh, suddenly become anxious because we realize, um, you know, we hadn't heard from somebody in a couple of days and now we start to wonder, are they mad at us? Did I say something wrong? We can start to become quite anxious and immediately we become very threat focused in our processing. So we start to think through and all we can remember, are, you know, negative things that we might've said to this person or that time they did get really mad at us or, you know, something that we're ashamed or embarrassed about that we did. And we start to think about like the texts that we've sent. And suddenly we think, Oh, you know, somebody could read that text and they could think I meant this when actually I meant that. And nowhere in all that processing are is the person able to remember times when they, you know, this person was really friendly towards them, they had a great relationship that the person might have gotten mad at them once but got over it very quickly. So we don't we don't reference information that's that's positive, even or even neutral. And so I've so some of my research has looked at, at what happens attentionally when we're anxious and what we can do about that. And then the other set of research that I do looks at the kinds of strategies people do to try to reduce their anxiety and in particular in the in the context of obsessive compulsive disorder so we are looking at compulsions and why people uh why compulsions persist and how anxiety prolongs them um uh, you mentioned other cognitive distortions at least in your bio so i don't know if this qualifies but i've seen uh sometimes when let's say someone i've spoken to will try to read my mind or thinks they read my mind and i said yeah how do you know what i'm thinking is that an example of a cognitive distortion or if not, what are? Yeah. So I, I tend to not um, prefer the language. I don't, th- I don't, uh, if I have cognitive distortion in my, my bio, I'm going to fix it. <laughs> I, I tend not to like to use that word because actually the, we, what can happen is that we can come to conclu- anxiety can cause us to come to an anxiety relevant conclusion very quickly without a second thought. So for example, if, if we've, if you know our boss walks by us in the hall and doesn't say hello, our mind can immediately go to, oh my gosh, he is really displeased with my work and I'm about to get fired. And then that can that the anxiety presents that idea as a on a silver platter as if it's a fact. And then we start behaving or thinking like we're about to get fired. When in fact we we have no information whatsoever that that's happened. And so some people might say that that conclusion, my boss is going to fire me, is a distortion. I would say it's a logical product of anxiety hijacking. It's very logically consistent with what the anxiety is saying. So the anxiety is immediately interpreting the boss's behavior as personal and then immediately saying, well, if it's personal and he's not talking to you, what did you do wrong? And and it's, so it's sort of a logical project of re- reasoning. But yeah, so the idea that other people like, you, well, often the, when they say mind reading in the literature, what they're referring to is that is, is you reading someone else's mind. So in this case, this person is reading the boss's mind. Oh, he, he's doing this because he's really mad at me and I did a bad job. So that's like a kind of mind reading. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to know, right? Are there, mm-hmm. uh, so you would call these what anxiety induced? I, I think of them as the anxiety is kind of hijacked the normal processes and it's only presenting you or allowing you to think about negative or threatening information at the expense of neutral or positive information. So as you're walking down the hall and you have that sudden conclusion, you don't remember, you know, that, you know, two weeks ago you got a fantastic performance report or that you and the boss were laughing together in the photocopy room yesterday. 
that information is sort of cut off when the anxiety takes over. So I think of it more as it's anxiety hijacking information processing. Yeah, I could see taking it from my point of view, but that would make me mad because I would, you know, if someone, let's say I was the boss and the person thought that and somehow they told me, you know, Mm -hmm. I would get mad because I would think, well, didn't we just have a a fun time the other day? And Mm -hmm. what about this? What about that? And I would think that the person forgot it all or just didn't, it didn't seem to matter. It Mm -hmm. would make me angry. What's the dynamic of the people that anxious people interact with? What's that called? And and what happens there? Yeah, so there can be a lot of interpersonal consequences to anxiety. So for example, like, just like you talked about, like, if the boss, like, you know, if you say to the boss, Oh, I thought you were mad at me, the boss could think, well, like, a, like, why would you think that I would be so unprofessional to let you know, I'm like to, to just not like to glare at you in the hallway or whatever it is you think I did if if I was because I'm I'm more professional than that and secondly we just had a really good evaluation like what what's making you you think that I'm so fickle that I would change my opinion so yes it it, it can be um, sort of perturbing uh, to people and some people might but actually feel quite you know kind of like annoyed that somebody would think that of them the other thing that happens is people with anxiety often want a lot of reassurance so the person with generalized anxiety, for example, may call somebody frequently throughout the day just to kind of quell their own anxiety, like to say, are you home? Did you get there? Okay. Did you, you know, did you pick that up? Okay. And and that can be draining for family members. People with obsessive compulsive disorder, well, we know that the vast majority of people with OCD involve family members in their obsessions and compulsions. So one way they involve them is they they require the family to follow certain rules. So, you know, you you cannot come into the house until you've taken your shoes off and washed your hands. Or if you go for groceries, you can't buy, put batteries in your food. Batteries all have to be stored in a separate bag. So that's one way. The other way is is a lot of reassurance seeking. So saying, is the stove off? Are you sure? Can you check the stove for me? Or, or requiring the other person to take responsibility. No, you lock up. I don't want to do it. Or I don't want to drive because uh, I think, you know, I'm going to worry. I'm going to hit somebody. So you have to drive. And so this can certainly strain um, re- relationships or people with health anxiety can, you know, just be so focused on their health that, that they're, they become like just overly focused and unable to be of support to other people sometimes, or, or the conversation just always goes back to their concern about their health, which is, can be trying for people. People with panic disorder may have lots of rules and limits about what they're willing to do or not willing to do uh, in order to avoid a panic attack and may um, require, you know, they won't go out alone and require accompaniment and such. So uh, our people with social anxiety can ask for a lot of reassurance or they can also immediately assume that somebody's they've upset somebody when they haven't. And and again, that can actually lead to people being upset with them, like you pointed out. I, I just wonder, like, you're right, the, the interaction of the anxious I guess I'll just call them that with people that are not. I'm sure it creates a lot of friction. And again, I'm thinking also about the past 18 months of, mm-hmm. you know, what if you have someone that's prone to panic attacks and they're the, they work at a grocery store and they're put on the front door and they're supposed mm-hmm. to check people coming in mm-hmm. for temperature and stuff like that. And they're so anxious themselves. And now they've been told like, you know, everyone's going to die and mm-hmm. yet they have to check people coming into the store. I'm sure you don't get good dynamics there. 
So yeah, I, yeah, it's hard to know. Um, I think many people would just avoid, like, refuse to do it if they were if they were that that anxious. Uh, some people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. I think that people with anxiety, one thing they are good at is self control. So I think in the situation you're talking about, that the person at the door might be a little bit reactive, like if don't come in here with if you have a mask and may may speak sharply to people. Yeah, I think that's true. And we forget that anxiety is a fight response as well as a flight response. So sometimes when people are anxious, they can actually come across as very angry. And, and it's because they're, tr- they're, they're just very frightened. So are there emotions that kind of like uh, two-sided coins, like you know, anger and fear, are they paired? And are there other emotions that are paired that manifest in these kind of disorders? So I think in anxiety, I think, I think anxiety and anger can be quite paired um, and people be, can become very angry if they think people aren't taking their anxiety seriously. And often they're told by relatives, just calm down, stop worrying. You worry too much. No, I'm, I'm not going to reassure you again, you know, and they, people can become very angry at family members because they are feeling very threatened. So yes, anger and threat are the two responses in anxiety because it is a fight or flight kind of response. And uh, people with anxiety can also be very focused in, inwardly, like trying to sort something out mentally. So somebody with OCD may be in a mental bubble, trying to remember everything that their handbag touched while they were out doing an errand, uh, so they can figure out where where they need to wipe it or whether or not it can even come into the house. And or they might be trying to remember whether or not they turn the stove off. And uh, when they're interrupted, they, people can be really irritable because they're trying to solve. They're desperately trying to solve what they think is an extremely important problem or issue for them. Uh, and they're trying to they're trying to reassure themselves and, and can be touchy if they're pulled off course on that. So what does some of the therapy look like? I guess I get just give you one example. I'm not sure if this is therapy, but you know, my wife sometimes is, is anxious and mm-hmm. uh, I used to say to her, what's the matter? And that didn't go over too well. Somehow I figured out to say, well, what are you feeling right now? How do you feel right now? And that works better. You know, so say, oh, I feel anxious or I'm worried. I say, what are you worried about? I'm worried about everything. How can you be worried about everything? But at least it gets the conversation going. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, I think what your wife might be communicating is like, she can't, it's a challenging question to answer because she's feeling maybe overwhelmed. Um, and, and doesn't even necessarily know, like there's just so much going on or, uh, people with anxiety, if they actually reveal what they're, what they're anxious about, they may have learned that other people will not, I'm not saying that this is your, in your case, but other people may have, may have been mocked or caused to feel stupid about what they're anxious or, or else the person will say, Oh, you're so silly. Just stop it. Just stop it. And for them though, the, the concern is very, very real. And, and what we work on when, when I'm working with people, it's about, it's about recognizing when the anxiety is in the driver's seat and taking a moment to pause. And instead of saying, I'm so anxious right now, be able to say, I'm aware of being anxious right now and taking a mental step backward and saying, what are the things, what are the ideas that are driving my anxiety right now? What is it I'm afraid is going to happen? And why do I think that's going to happen? And taking time to actually what we call downregulate the anxiety response and remember and help people start to identify those conclusions the anxiety brings on a silver platter and saying, okay, so you, you, your anxiety took a leap there. You had an instance where you were walking by your boss in the hall and your anxiety immediately concluded that you were in trouble at work. 
But if we zoom out and we take into account all the information that's available to us, we need to come to let, let's see if that conclusion still works. So let's think about a really nice interaction with your boss in the photocopy room. Let's think about your performance report. Let's think about the kind of work you've been doing and pull this in. Does this, is this conclusion still the best conclusion about why the boss behaved like they did? And so it can help people like, uh, it's like in a, the anxiety focuses you on threat. What I try to do is help people learn to be able to zoom out and look at all the relevant information and then draw a conclusion so that they can act rather than react. Yeah, that sounds like a good strategy that people can try. What about, um, again, if you know or live with or interact with someone that has, you know, one of these conditions, are there mm-hmm. any helpful tips for you to work with that person so they don't like punch you out? Or Yeah, I think, first of all, I would say anxiety is treatable. And a lot of people just don't end up in, in treatment, but anxiety is really treatable. So if somebody's having a lot of anxiety throughout the day, They may be thinking there's a lot to be anxious about, but actually, even if there's a lot to be anxious about, we don't have to be anxious. And so we can manage situations even even without being anxious, even if there's a lot going on. So I would first say, get help, like find find a good psychologist or or therapist who knows a lot about treating anxiety and uh, and get get help that way. The, the second thing that somebody with, it's more about what somebody with anxiety, our anxiety tells us there's threat. And so our natural inclination is to avoid, like to, you know, so if, if we went to a mall once and we had a panic attack, we might avoid going back to that mall. Well, what we know 100% is that if we face our fears systematically, if we, uh, you know, if we're afraid of dogs, start like find somebody who has a cute fluffy dog and spend time with that cute fluffy dog so that you can get new learning about dogs. If you had a panic attack at the mall, go back to that mall and just stay there. You might feel uncomfortable at first, but wait it out. You might even have a panic attack. Panic attacks are unpleasant, but they're not dangerous. Wait it out. And what we find 100% when people actually uh, expose themselves to their fears in a way that allows them to get new learning, in a way where they can they can look at what was their, what did they expect to happen and compare it to what actually happened. So to get that new learning, it takes the anxiety away, actually, the, you know, the excessive anxiety. So, so that's really important. For somebody who's, who's got, lives with somebody who's anxious, I think it's important to not say calm down or to, or to say stop worrying. Just, just you could ask them to ask themselves, first of all, to frame it, okay, so you're aware of being anxious. What kinds of conclusions is the anxiety bringing and what's what's information? What is all the information? So you could kind of coach people a little bit like that uh, and, and see how that goes. But but definitely don't say calm down because never in the history of telling people to calm down has a single person ever calmed down. So you're saying you ask the anxiety, sorry, you ask the person what conclusions is the anxiety telling you? Yeah, yeah. So so like what so let's start with you're aware of being anxious. What what is the anxiety telling you right now? What is the anxiety voice saying to you? And let's let's step out of that. Like what I usually I I, I differentiate the anxiety from the person. So let's say the person I'm talking to, her name's let's say their name is Fatima. I would say right now I want to talk to Fatima. I don't want to talk to Fatima's anxiety. What does Fatima have to say about the situation? And Fatima might say, 
well, I know I'm probably overreacting about the boss. Yeah. Okay. So like, what is it that makes you think you might be overreacting? Well, I had this good report and blah, blah. So, okay. So Fatima, let's now put that in perspective. Let's look at all the information and let's think about what is the best conclusion for this situation rather than what the anxiety says the conclusion is. So I try to differentiate the person from their symptoms. So the person doesn't get uh, offended. You know, like I'm not a, I'm not a multiple personality. Oh yeah. Well, no. Don't talk to me like that. Yeah. Well, no, this wouldn't be done without the, the context of a good relationship, but, but I think, um, I, I think people identify an anxiety voice or an OCD voice or a depression voice. And, and what we want to do is the internal self-talk. Like we know these people are not psychotic. It's in, we all engage in internal self-talk. So it's just that the, when, when the anxiety is talking, it means it's hijacked and the, the, and it's, it's kicked the other person out of the driving driver's seat and we can help them reclaim it. It seems like there's a dividing line. And I wonder if there is um, people that are anxious about a certain thing that they identify and then other people seem to be anxious but they don't know what it is it's like generalized mm-hmm. invisible it's like a phantom out of these two i mean are there two types like this and what do you do like become the other well i think i mean usually people like people can have sort of a vague sense of dread and that that's not a, uncommon with panic is that there's this sense of, of amorphous dread I think there, one one thing I do is I help people learn progressive muscle relaxation, not for panic, but for just a sort of a generalized sense anxiety with no particular focus or target. I think there it can be really important to just uh, reduce the tension in your muscles and reduce your breathing, uh, like get out of the hyperventilation, get out of the... and and calm the body and that helps calm the mind and so that's it's a skill but um there's there are particular ways of of going about it that i use with people but often i i think it's rare that there's just sort of untethered anxiety like i think that typically when what happens is anxiety can get triggered for no good reason but then people try to pin it on something like people think if if i'm anxious there must be something to be anxious about and so they that's where worry comes from is people is like, oh, well, you know, why am I, why am I feeling anxious? Oh, Bob's not home. I wonder if Bob got in an accident. Like, so, so there, people are like, we're, we're we try to understand, we, we try to try to have a, an understanding of why we're anxious. So we will often try to focus or direct our anxiety. And so often people will then like be like, we can say, okay, well, when you're anxious, what goes through your head? Well, you know, the environment, the politics, the this, the that, the this, the that. And what we want to do is, is regroup people about what, are, what is it you need to do in the here and now? Like, do you need to put the laundry on? <laughs> do, you, do you need to make a meal? Do you need to go for a run? And so just kind of bring people back to the here and now and what it is they need to accomplish in the moment. The other thing that's very, very helpful for anxiety is, is, is burning off the adrenaline. Because the adrenaline leaves you all revved up and nothing to flee or fight. So getting out and, and burning off that adrenaline can actually be very, very helpful for anxiety. Yeah. What I was wondering is if someone is generally anxious, are they as, are they better off than someone that knows what they're anxious about or either way, it doesn't matter. And I, I don't, I don't think so. I think um, there's just sort of, a, they have challenges in different ways, but I think it's, it's equally unpleasant and difficult. Uh, what about um, depression? What's the interplay of that and anxiety? Does one, lead to another do they you start with one and then you become the other or vice versa 
It's hard to, that's hard to know. In, there, there's been a bit of research, like, so for example, with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder is most com- comorbid with depression and social anxiety. And in one study that's been done, the depression came after the OCD, which can make sense because having OCD can be very depressing. It can limit your activities. It can get you caught in these mental loops that part of you knows is irrational. And certainly everyone else around you says is irrational, but yet you can't seem to help yourself. We also know that if people are depressed, they can become very anxious because depression is characterized by a sense of failure and worthlessness and incompetence and or in some cases just a complete absence of any kind of emotion and so the person it it feels very ineffectual and if you feel like you're a failure if you feel very ineffectual if you feel very weak then you can start thinking oh my gosh like how am I ever going to do x or y how am I ever going to get this project done Um, what if this keeps lasting and I'm on long-term disability already what if I can't ever get back to work. And so people can flip into the catastrophic future and start worrying tremendously, you know, or people who've had depression often can get very worried about whether they're going to have another episode because it's, it was such an aversive experience um, and so debilitating. So, so those two things can, can very much go together. So what do you see as the future of treatment? Is it working that just needs to be, you just need to see People need to see a therapist and that's the answer or are there missing treatments or what's needed from here? Yeah, I think there's a tiered approach. So I think if you're bothered by anxiety, excessive anxiety, sometimes, then there are really excellent websites with resources with them. And what you're looking for is cognitive behavior therapy, like a cognitive behavior approach where it guides you through being able to expose yourself to what it is that you're afraid of that. And if, but if you're, if you're anxious a lot of the time, even if you think, well, I'm anxious a lot of time because there's so much to be anxious about. Actually, that probably means that you're having far more anxiety than you need to be having. And we can help people find ways to not be anxious, even though there's lots of stuff and uncertainty out there. And I think there it is, it is really, again, anxiety is so treatable. And in, you know, six to 12 sessions, you can actually really cure anxiety with a cognitive behavior therapy. So I would definitely recommend that. So I think what people need to do is, is always like, so one, one principle is exposure, right? Like, so if you're afraid of going to that mall, if you're afraid of driving there, do it, but do it multiple times. So do it, and think about what am I being conscious of? What do I expect is going to happen? And then what actually happens? And then do it again, do it at least 10 times. And I think that people can really conquer their fears by doing those sorts of things. But if the fears stay, if they're really debilitating, if it's really severely impacting ability to get on with your work or function as a, in, in your family role or socialize with your friends, then yeah, I think uh, seeing somebody and getting formal help is, is a good idea. Well, very good. It's been a great call. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you and where can you, where do you serve people? Uh, so I, I have a very tiny private practice, uh, but uh, people can email me at, at my University of Waterloo address. Um, and there are also lots of resources online now. So if you type in cognitive behavior therapy for X or Y in my area, you, you will probably find psychologists or therapists who can help you too. Well, very good. Okay. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate okay. it. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.